Hello, my name is Mari Gerard, and I am the Managing Editor for Custom Content at Pharma Intelligence, publishers of Scrip, Pinksheet, Invivo, MedTech Insight, HBW Insight, and Generics Bulletin. In collaboration with Trilink Biotechnologies, Pharma Intelligence recently hosted a panel discussion on easing manufacturing bottlenecks to meet the potential of mRNA, featuring a distinguished lineup of speakers. We have Andreas Kuhn, Senior Vice President, RNA Biochemistry and Manufacturing at BioNTech, Greg Troiano, Chief Manufacturing Officer of the mRNA Center of Excellence at Sanofi, Phil Chalice, VP of Product Development at Etherna, Albert E. Price, Senior Director for CMC Development at IRV, and Khaled Yamut, Senior Director for Quality Control at Trilink Biotechnologies. The global pandemic and success of mRNA technology in vaccines immunizing against severe COVID-19 infections has brought significant public interest in the potential of this technology. However, manufacturing at the levels needed for vast patient populations raises challenges. The panel came together with Bowman Cox, executive editor at Pharma Intelligence, to discuss how the industry can ease the bottlenecks that currently exist to broader usage of mRNA. In the first of two podcast episodes featuring discussion highlights, we will focus on strengthening supply chains, drug substance, and drug product manufacturing. Talking with our panelists uh, leading up to this event, I have learned about many different barriers and bottlenecks with mRNA manufacturing that they are looking into and addressing. There are challenges with supply chain, formulation, process engineering, analytics, regulatory interpretation, and um, the evolution of manufacturing platforms. And uh, so I'd like to start this off by asking Andreas about one that was a big issue with the COVID vaccines, which is how to strengthen the resilience of the mRNA supply chain. Andreas? Uh, yes, thanks, Bowman, first of all, for the introduction and, and uh, happy being part of, of that panel. To, uh, to, to your question, I, I think there, there are two things to, to consider uh, when, when you look back at, at early 2020 or mid-2020. Uh, on one side, of course, um, there were a number of companies developing vaccines against COVID-19, not only mRNA-based vaccines, but other types of vaccines as well. And I think uh, the governments wanted to make sure that priority is given to, to these efforts with respect to material availability. And uh, th that was certainly one factor which, honestly, I, I can't talk that much about because it was really more like a, a government type of, of decision. But if, if you look specifically at, at mRNA, uh, and, and the scale of manufacturing that was in place at that time, it was well below what would be needed ultimately if the mRNA vaccines would be successful. And, and they were, uh, uh, luckily, because just like estimating how much RNA was manufactured in 2018, 2019, looking what we did, what others have published, it was probably just a few hundred grams of RNA in total per year which also meant, on, or this meant on one side, um, there was capacity by the manufacturers itself from, from uh, the reactors they had, the, the uh, sites of the facility and things like that. But also, of course, from the, the materials 
that were supplied, uh, the NTPs, the enzymes, the amount of, of plasmid DNA needed for the RNA manufacturing. And so that certainly needed to be scaled up to be prepared in case uh, really millions or ultimately billions of doses are required. And that was really an effort that was taken uh, both by the manufacturers and developers itself, but also by, by the suppliers and, and so the whole industry. Because it, it not only relates to specific materials for mRNA, as I mentioned before, and these enzymes, and then for the formulation, the lipids, but also more um, uh, generic things. I mean, you need glass vials to fill your vaccine, and everyone needed them. You need reactors to do the reaction and, and things like that. And so that was kind of the background we had in, in early, mid-2020. So we all know that um, there was an extraordinary demand surge for all of these things during uh, the pandemic. But if we pivot and we look ahead, maybe there's some things that we learn from the challenges then on the supply chain that uh, as we start to explore the future with mRNA, uh, we're seeing maybe some specific issues, components, parts of the supply chain where maybe we need to pay special attention. Any thoughts there, Phil? Would you have a thought on on that, like uh, parts of the supply chain to focus on now? Yeah, there are parts, certainly aspects of the um, of the supply chain uh, that we can consider. Um, for example, uh, supply of enzymes, plasmids, NTPs, enzymes in particular, NTPs, capping reagents. There have been some difficulty with with availability. Overall, I think availability has been relatively good. However, in in some cases, the costs are, are relatively high indeed. However, there are opportunities to circumvent that by by going into uh, enhanced process development initiatives, for example, to optimize your, your upstream process and maximize its effectiveness. And in terms of such optimizations, you can obtain increased yields, vastly improved impurity profiles, and even greatly reduced uh, use of capping reagent. So in terms of uh, enzymes, plasmids, NTPs, that's certainly one strategy that can be avoided. Right, and a lot of these supplies, if you, what about stockpiling? I mean, you could stockpile supplies for one mRNA product and they would be useful for another, but yet also there's probably only so far ahead that you could do that given perhaps stability considerations. Yeah, maybe to, to jump in here and thank you for setting it up, Bowman. <clears throat> as um, as you say, a lot of just the practices of the past, proactive planning, stockpiling, having multiple vendors are certainly lessons learned we can apply. As Andrea said, there's some additional challenges with mRNA, right? You're, we have a very complex supply chain. Some of these enzymes can be custom lipids as well, and, and maybe was a niche market before. So 2020 really changed that and created these challenges, but also create a lot of opportunities. And I think we have seen a lot of those supply chains start to open up so that you can do the stockpiling, the, the multiple vendors, the proactive planning. And, and you're right, there's some additional considerations, stability materials, uh, cold chain storage. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. That also apply to the supply, to, to the raw materials. Cold chain is also an issue in the supply chain. For sure. I mean, I think everyone uh, is aware of the mRNA thermostability challenges itself and, and, and the LNP, but even a lot of the raw materials, there's 
a lot of frozen supply chain on the enzymes, on the on the lipids. And and part of that is is being conservative because we just don't have a lot of data on some of these materials. And that's as we gain more and more information, we can, you know, hopefully have a little bit more favorable uh, conditions there. But some are, these are both physically and chemically sensitive materials that you do need to protect. To add to that, most of the reagents were done on a small scale, not really a very, very large scale and not in a GMP environment. And mRNAs were used for more of a diagnostic IVD tools, but now it's a drug substance. And with the drug substance, there's much more requirement. And part of the supply chain hurdles is where do I find my GMP material? And, you know, most of the manufacturers, they're not there yet because they need to scale up to in a GMP clean environment to, in order to supply that. And based on that, since we're small, you know, small amounts, there's not that many stability studies were done. So again, as Craig said, uh, the approach was to, to take the most conservative way. But is that necessary or not? That's uh, being, you know, or there's a lot of people trying to answer that right now to take some of those hurdles off. Right. Excellent. And then, you know, are there particular materials that we want to? that anybody wants to comment about before we move on to the drug substance area? I mean, perhaps regarding the lipids or, or other components. I can maybe pick up on some of the, the lipids. I think during the COVID pandemic, I think the, uh, for the more generic lipids, the three generic lipids that are typically used, I think, uh, yeah, the supply chains were severely tested indeed. And in some ways, there was a, really a huge capacity expansion. And that capacity expansion indeed has been very good news for the company. In terms of ionizable lipids for LMPs, the availability, there is not a great variety and not a large number of sources. Some of the um, some of the, the licensing deals to obtain good ionizable lipids and effective ionizable lipids are, are um, really high cost again. This area recently has been, it's been addressed by a number of smaller innovative companies who are engaged in synthesis of new novel ionizable lipids, ones in, indeed which will facilitate better organ targeting and delivery and also better expression. And, and in many ways, it's good that companies are, are addressing this issue. It will, in the end, reduce the, the entry barrier for those um, smaller academic groups, smaller startups and biotechs that are now um, coming forward with new innovations and new therapy areas. One, of the, one thing I'd just like to add to that, which is all true, is that one of the things, the COVID, the high demand for lipids in for the lipid components of COVID vaccines had an impact on lipid availability in general for the entire biopharma field. And we discovered this um, trying to source adjuvants, which are uh, many of them are lipid based and found that uh, availability of other lipids was impacted by this situation. So it's, it's not just the specific ionizable lipids. It's not just the IP around it. It's just simply the manufacturing capability and companies that have the expertise to do that sort of synthesis. Excellent. Thank you. And I feel like maybe the, the stress on single use system components is probably eased a little bit uh, and some of the sort of other general materials that the industry requires. And I uh, just want to encourage the uh, audience as you think of questions to 
go ahead and just type those into the chat box and uh, we'll get to as many of those as we can. And I guess uh, I'd like to move on now to questions about drug substance and drug product manufacturing. Looking at starting with drug substance, I think the big issues there have to do with, you know, in, increasing the yields, impurities, stability, other, other factors. What is your thinking about the barriers there and what to do about them? Let me throw this one to Phil, if you've got a thought on that. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah, in terms of yields, impurity, stability, cost, etc. Perhaps it's also a good idea to, um, to take a step a, a little further backward. We want to talk about yields, so good expression is also important. It's important to have good codon optimization to maximize expression potential and to reduce uh, innate immune activation. And, and that means that actually you can minimize some of the doses administered in your different indications. And again, to optimize your mRNA structural features, so the cap, the UTRs, the poly-A tail, and the coding sequence, et cetera, in this way, maximizing your expression and stabilities is a very important precursor to process activities. I spoke previously a little about yeah, reagent cost, and certainly the upstream process optimization can, can greatly increase yield, reduce impurity load for the downstream, and also reduce uh, expensive reagent usage. In addition, yeah, new DSP or downstream process modalities can improve quality and, and also improve the impurity profile. And then, of course, it's important that we continue to improve our analytics because it's our analytics that facilitate improving the processes in the upstream and the downstream areas. And again, in terms of in-process materials, some of these analytics might include assays for pyrophosphate, capping efficiency, truncated species, etc., and, and other degradants. These will become even more important as we start to work on larger constructs in our vectors. Right. Uh, anyone want to elaborate on the challenges with analytic uh, related to the drug substance? Uh, Andreas, yes. So, so maybe adding to that, and, and mm -hmm. I, I will come to the, to the analytics part as, as well, but, but I think what's the way I see it, I mean, you, you mentioned yield of the reaction. I think here, I think the industry is pretty good from what I know from own experience and what I've seen from others. It's kind of like the, the NTPs in the reactions are used up. So you're, you're really using up your, your system. I think it's it's more about improving the, the quality of your RNA. And uh, Phil mentioned already some of the things like, like codon usage. So I, I see it also more from the purification side of the molecule. I think we are we are really only at the beginning of, of the mRNA age, to say it like that. Maybe where antibodies were 20, 25 years ago. So, I mean, everyone is using the same RNA polymerase like everyone used kind of a standard cell line and, and there have been improvement to cell lines for antibodies there will be improvements for the rna polymerases and similarly purification of the of the rna there will be improvement and that brings us to the to the analytical tools that, that were mentioned of course to improve the, the purification we have to understand 
the side products that, that we have and uh, what effect they, they have on the quality of our molecule. And, and so it's, it's really a broad effort to further improve uh, RNA um, so that it becomes more efficacious, that, that lower doses can uh, do the same effect. Um, and, and that, of course, then helps because then with the same reaction, you will get more doses because your individual dose would be lower. Regarding the analytics, it's, it, it's something that I believe a lot of companies are struggling with because there is no standards to go by. And recently, the USP drafted a chapter you know, for the characterization of mRNA, you know, and trying to get solicit some uh, input regarding that. So there's some some place someone can go to and say, those are the, the methods that we need for characterization of the mRNA. But again, the, the, some of the challenges are if you don't uh, design it properly in terms of your coding, your codons and all of that, then you're going to have problems with your poly A tail with the capping efficiency. And right now there's multiple assays that used for, let's say, capping efficiency, but there haven't been studies to confirm all of them are equivalent. So, you know, sometimes you hear someone, I'm getting 90% capping efficiency, but with the same reagents, another lab is getting 80, but the methods are not the same. And there's no bridging studies or any studies to show that th those are equivalent. It is an important part because as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, the early usage of mRNA was not intended for therapeutics at the time. So most of the methods are qualitative. And now we're stepping into more quantitative methods you know, to understand the processes, to understand the release and understand the stability uh, and having proper stability indicating methods to show that, you know, do we really need the minus 20 or two to eight is good. Th those are answers, you know, kind of require a lot more rigorous analytics. So I, I would echo the, the Andreas point that we are right now where antibodies were 25 to 30 years ago. And um, at the time, there was not that many analytical tools for that that are quantitative. And now there is plenty of methods. And, you know, one of them is is, is being accepted by the FDA to be acceptable as LCMS. You know, 10 years ago, if you present stuff with mass spec to the FDA, they're skeptical because they tell you how you are qualifying it and how you're controlling it. But now there's more controls and, and more rigorous studies regarding that. So many good points on across the board, so I won't be redundant. I mean, on the process side, maybe the one thing to add is next generation processes such as more process intensification through continuous manufacturing, that type of, of thing. But I, I think Khaled's point on the analytics, as we iterate these processes and create these improvements, if you're not having really solid analytics to understand what you make. And I think, you know, one additional point to add there is really developing that correlation or really that analytical test result to performance because yes you can get different capping results for example but if if that doesn't if what you're measuring doesn't translate into what you're trying to achieve in terms of performance then it's not a, a, a worthwhile method so you know, just like we relate process our process parameters to our quality attributes we really have to get relevant test results to how the performance how it translates into the performance.
And, and I would fully agree with that. And I think we, we have to consider two areas. So first of all, it's usual for us to think of um, analytics in terms of QC analytics and validated QC methods. But we also have to look forward and improve our understanding by characterizing the impurities that are being generated. So understanding actually and characterizing our five prime end, looking into characterizing double-stranded RNA, how can it be characterized? What is it? In addition to the more truncated impurities and poly-A tail, the characterization is important in improving our understanding. And, and that's fundamental to developing high quality QC analytical assays. I fully agree with that, and and there's a you know there's still a long road to to get quite a few of those because again it's, mRNA is a large molecule and there's a lot of stuff that need to uh, be developed from the analytical standpoint to answer those questions to support the you know the characterization and the enhancement of the processes understanding impurities. So Bowman, you there was there was a lot of great talk about the drug substance. I think. Um, we probably want to spend some time addressing yeah. the drug product, the LNP. I think we talked a little bit about lipids, but really the, the LNP itself. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, and, and, and I think Andres is, is perfect position to talk about how, my gosh, in these early days, we were making how many, mil, we would, we would talk in milligrams of, uh, of, of LNP and, and microfluidics and, and, and it was very appropriate for what we were doing, but, how much we've had to scale uh, everyone on the LMP side, and, and you know, I think addressing some of the new technologies, the new uh, process ways, uh, and some of the challenges there, I, I think it would be great to hear from everyone. Does that sound like a good topic? Excellent. Yes, on the drug product side, Andreas, you want to pick it up from there? Um, sh sure, sure. I, I, I can try a little bit. My, my main focus is on, on RNA, but of course, I mean, we, we have to look at, at the whole process. And, and I think I agree with, with Greg here that, that the LNP side is the one that, that's still more challenging with respect to the, to the upscaling, um, which has something to do with the uh, inherent instability of, of the formulations. And so the, the more time you take up during your manufacturing process, um, where you kind of already stress your, your LNPs, if, if the mixing process uh, takes a, a very long time uh, during upscaling, that's time you kind of lose for your like real usage time at the end of your product. And so um, looking at the way you, you mix your lipids with the RNA, how you then handle your product afterwards, uh, bring it from from the low pH where the LNP uh, formation is done to more stable conditions. These are kind of the things to keep in mind here, which I believe uh, will be important to to really make mRNA uh, a common uh, drug uh, format outside of of the vaccine field. Maybe I'll I'll even add. There's many ways to create more LNPs and they could be scaling up or scaling out. But one challenge that hasn't come up yet is, is really the facility piece. And nobody has figured out how to formulate these, well, may, may, maybe people have, but really formulate without the use of flammable solvents. Almost everyone is using ethanol. And when you get to these large volumes, no matter how your process is, you do have to have the consideration of your handling of flammable solvent. And in a sterile drug product, you're in grade C clean rooms, the combination of grade C clean rooms and 
flammable uh, solvent handling, explosion proof, is not one that's just very commonly out there. Certainly in, in some of the polymer world and some of the microsphere world, some of this was done. But that's the, an additional challenge for scaling this technology is that you're dealing with a complex drug product formulation that's often sterile as well. Yeah. I think in terms of drug product manufacture, I think, uh, yeah, process robustness is important, reducing cycle times and, and also whether or not you can make use of, um, of QBD. But I think in the first place, when we talk about LMPs, I think the formulation of the LMP itself is a key important starting point. Indeed, the selection of lipids, the, their ratios and optimizing um, the ratios, the formulation itself and, and even how the LMP behaves in vivo. And I think process robustness is an area where certainly we can we can improve. And robustness and scalability of mixing technologies is indeed, as Greg, as you mentioned, is a, is a very important area. I think also for, um, for drug product processes, the downstream processing is, is, is really crucial. Different LMPs have different stability characteristics and the downstream processing operations need to be tuned to take account of, of the varying stabilities. And then you have uh, the, the optimization and ethanol removal it, it is key together with the, the concentration and the formulation steps. So I, I think all of these are elements which are, which are very important to ensure that we start with robust processes in the first place. And I think in terms of QBD, it certainly is applicable to process development for drug product manufacture. And again, a number of approaches for QBD relating to mRNA drug product are in, in the public domain. And again, QBD can potentially, yeah, it means that you can apply platform approaches to accelerate your pipelines. And, and then also at later stages, such QBD approaches can uh, speed your way through the process validation activities that will be important for late stage development. Well, that's it for this episode on easing manufacturing bottlenecks to meet the potential of mRNA. Make sure you listen to part two, which will be available on our podcast channel. I would like to thank our speakers for participating in the roundtable discussion. Andreas, Greg, Phil, Albert and Khaled, our moderator Bowman, and our sponsor for the discussion, TriLink Biotechnologies, for making this whole series possible.